A big, big area is blood pressure management. These trials were underpowered. Increasing oxygen consumption in an injured brain is a bad idea. We still, though, have many uncertainties with targeted temperature management. Up to 96% of them have occlusive lesions on cath. We really don't have strong evidence to say what to do. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy you're joining us for this podcast. We are rounding out 2020 with one of our final episodes here in the calendar year. And as we talked about during our last podcast, this is going to be part two of the 2020 AHA Guidelines for Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Emergency Cardiovascular Care, their 220 update. In part one, we focused on cardiac arrest. Here in part two, we're going to touch on a few new updates in post-cardiac arrest care. But before jumping into the meat of the matter, let me bring in my co-host, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. John, I'll start with you. How are you this podcast? Oh, man, Mike, I'm doing great. I'm ready to talk about some post-arrest care. This is one of my favorite topics, so I'm ready to get going. Sounds great. Peter, how are you? I'm doing well in New Orleans, you know, wading through the resurgence of COVID, but at the moment have enough resources and folks and managing it all. Sounds good. And Rob, our celebrity on the West Coast. Oh, doing great. Doing great here on the West Coast. We are having an uptick in cases here in California and appropriately going to more restrictive measures throughout the state. But yeah, doing great. And we hope that all of you listening to this podcast are certainly doing well, staying healthy. And you live COVID every moment of every day, I think, in terms of hospital operations, the patients you take care of, even probably in your personal life. So we are taking a break from that. And as we discussed, highlighting part two here in our AHA guideline update. So let's delve into some post-cardiac arrest care. John, you said it's one of your favorite topics, so set the stage for us. Absolutely. So sit back, relax, go to your happy place for the next 30 minutes. We're going to talk about part three of the new cardiac arrest update. So not to start on a down note, but we do know that most patients with return of spontaneous circulation after cardiac arrest will pass due to neurologic injury, especially without a hospital cardiac arrest. There's a lot of challenges in managing these patients, both outside the hospital and inside the hospital. So much of the post-arrest care that we're gonna talk about focuses on mitigating the secondary neurologic injury after you've achieved ROSC. And so things we're gonna focus on today, we're gonna talk about optimization of cerebral perfusion pressure, management of oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, targeted temperature management, and detection of and treatment of seizures. And you know, given the complexities of caring for these really, really sick patients, we know a multidisciplinary team is really preferred to kind of handle the nuances of some of these challenging clinical scenarios. Now, as a recap, the 2020 AHA updates are based on systematic reviews, scoping reviews, and evidence updates. The AHA assigns a class of recommendation based on strength and consistency of evidence and impact to patients. So there's going to be a level of evidence assigned, and that's going to be based on quantity, quality, relevance, and consistency of the available evidence. And this class of recommendations 
going to basically go between one and three, one being strong evidence, two A and B being moderate or weak, or three being fake news. Level evidence is also given a grade, and that's A, B, or C with some subdivisions amongst those. A is going to be your highest quality evidence that includes randomized control trials. Bs are going to be your moderate quality evidence that contain a randomized control trial with maybe a meta-analysis of some moderate quality RCTs. And Cs are going to be randomized or non-randomized observational or registry studies, or maybe even consensus statements or some empiric evidence. So that'll set the stage, but yeah, that's where we're going to start. Sounds good. And, and thanks for reviewing the class of recommendations and level of evidence. As we go through some of these recommendations, it can get confusing. So thanks, John. It's greatly appreciated. So what are the first few updates here in this post-arrest section? Well, the AHA leads off by simply talking about a few key things to think about and they recommend in the early post-resuscitation period. And that is really a comprehensive, structured, multidisciplinary system of care, thinking about implementing that in a consistent manner when you're treating these post-arrest patients. They give that a class of recommendation of one, so very strong recommendation based on some non-randomized observation on registry study data. And it's things that we've talked about before, having a structured and consistent approach to the post-arrest patient where we're thinking about oxygenation, ventilation, we're addressing hemodynamics, we're implementing TTM, we're getting patients off for coronary intervention, those that are applicable for PCI, and having that systematic approach to each and every ROSC patient really does lead to improved outcomes. Beyond that, as soon as possible, they recommend getting a 12-lead EKG in the patient who has had return of spontaneous circulation, and that's simply to detect the presence of a STEMI post-ROSC and to be able to get that patient off to the cath lab. And then they do make the recommendation of placing patients on the highest available O2 concentration in that immediate post-ROSC period. And that's really to take into account our pre-hospital colleagues, our pre-hospital providers, where they may not have the ability to measure pulse oximetry or some providers in resource settings initially with ROSC may not be able to measure PaO2. And in those circumstances where you really can't tell what their oxygenation is, to go ahead and just simply place them on a high level of O2. Now we're gonna talk about dialing that down in terms of hyperoxia and hypoxia, but in that immediate period, just go ahead and put them on 100% non-rebreather. So that's what they really cover in that early few minutes post-ROSC. Rob, a big, big area is blood pressure management. So where does the AHA fall in this 2020 update? Yeah, Mike, so it's preferable to avoid hypotension in these patients by maintaining a systolic blood pressure of at least 90 or a MAP of at least 65 in the post-arrest period. That's class of recommendation 2A or moderate evidence and level of evidence B for that, again, sort of moderate level of evidence. Underlying this is the fact that hypotension may worsen brain injury but the optimal mean arterial pressure is not really clear. Several observational studies have evaluated post-arrest MAP targets and outcomes. Most have not detected any differences in survival or survivable with favorable outcomes, but they're really not powered to distinguish such outcomes. A recent observational study comparing outcomes in patients with MAPs of 70 to 90 
and those greater than 90 found an association with better outcomes. So there's a trend towards benefit when targeting a map of 80 or above, but at this time really is unproven at the time of these updates. Thanks, Robin. I I think this is something we've touched on on prior post-arrest topics or podcasts that we've had that thinking about targeting a higher map, in essence, to maintain cerebral perfusion pressure. John talked about that in the background, but really when it comes down to it, the AHA relying on ILCOR and their systematic reviews, the evidence thus far continues to be primarily non-randomized and observational studies, and I don't think they could really formally come down and recommend a higher map, so they're, as you mentioned, maintaining the systolic pressure greater than 90 or a map of at least 65, but I think personally, and I'd be interested in John, Peter, and your opinions, are you targeting a higher map? So I do in New Orleans, I tend to push it in that direction. If I can without high, high dose vasopressors, I try and move towards that level. I'm not certainly not lowering anybody's blood pressure in the acute setting. Yeah, I agree, Peter. I'm doing the same. In general, I try to target to mid to high 70s on these patients. Now, understandably, this is based on my individual interpretation of some of the evidence out there, some of the studies. You know, if you look at kind of where the targets are in the higher performers, if you will, on their neurologic outcome scores after cardiac arrest, it seemed to be hovering in the mid-70s to high-70s or so. You know, there's always a question of what their baseline blood pressure is and relative hypotension, but certainly targeting a little bit of a higher MAP is something I do individually in this patient population. Yeah, I'm more likely to do that if the patient has a chronic history of hypertension and far more likely if they have poorly controlled history of hypertension. I'm on the same page, exactly. I think that You have to consider that with a lot of these studies that it's really hard to do large randomized controlled trials of these. And so you're not going to get like a ton of evidence supporting these recommendations, really just about any of these recommendations. You're not going to get a high level of evidence in terms of randomized controlled trials. But, you know, instinctive that these patients should have a higher MAP and I kind of really see little downside in shooting for that. So my practice is to go ahead and, and shoot for a bit higher map, at least a map of 70. All right. Well, let's transition. Peter, I'm going to throw things over to you for oxygenation and ventilation updates here from the AHA. And so if everybody remembers when Mike let us off here on oxygenation, if we can't measure anything, we're going to use high levels of FiO2, whether it's in the paramedic's hand or it's in the emergency department before we get pulse oximetry on or even in hospital cardiac arrest without pulse oximetry. Now, from there, you know, that strong recommendation is to avoid hypoxemia in all patients with return of spontaneous circulation. And the class of recommendation there is a one and the level of evidence there is moderate with non-randomized trials, but we're going to do that. Once a reliable measure of saturations are available, we're going to avoid hyperoxemia. So we're going to titrate the FiO2 to maintain saturations in the 92 to 98%. And so if that's new for any of you guys, you need to get on board with this. That class of recommendation is a 2B, and the level of evidence is moderate with randomized controlled trial to back that up. So that's important. So remember, 92 to 98% is the goal post-ROSC. So 2020 ILCOR systematic review found 
five randomized control trials, and these trials compared titrated or lower FiO2 administration strategy. So the goal was to have a lower FiO2. Overall, there was no difference found in clinical outcomes. But again, as a reminder, these trials were underpowered. I think it's most important to understand that we're not harming people by keeping saturations in the 92 to 98% range, and we may be benefiting them. A recent large randomized control trial compared usual care with aggressive avoidance of hyperoxemia, invented critically ill patients, and found no difference between groups, but increased survival in intervention arm of subgroup of post-arrest patients. So it looks like that subgroup with ROSC is going to benefit here. We want to maintain our PaCO2 within physiologic range. And so that range is going to be 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. And again, the class of recommendation there is a 2B, and the level of evidence is, again, moderate for those cases. We have two randomized control trials comparing a strategy of high normal PaCO2, 44 to 46, with low normal, 33 to 35, and a moderate hypercapnia, 50 to 55, with normal capnia, 35 to 45, finding no difference in outcomes. I think that's important. Six observational trials also evaluated this topic and had inconsistent results with significant risk of bias. So again, probably the go-to is going to be trying to target normal 35 to 45 PCO2. It might be a little bit different picture if you have someone who's a chronic retainer, but for all comers just to shoot for, let's shoot for the 35 to 45. Outstanding. So once we have that ability to measure either SpO2 or PaO2, we can start dialing down the FiO2 to maintain just 92 to 98% and then targeting kind of normal capnia, Peter, using our end title CO2. So outstanding. All right, John, this is an area in terms of reviewing the post-arrest guidelines that maybe I need to rethink and add some new things into my management in the emergency department in that early post-ROSC period. They really talk about diagnosing and subsequently treating seizure activity. So what should I be doing with EEGs and do I need to think about non-convulsive? Should I be prophylaxing all of my adult patients with ROSC with an anti-epileptic. Tell us what the latest updates are. All right, Mike. Now, these are some really good questions. And I think physiologically, it would make sense that increasing oxygen consumption in an injured brain is a bad idea. And certainly, seizures will increase our brain's metabolic rate, which can predispose patients theoretically to worse outcomes. Now, AHA did attempt to address most of the questions that you asked, and I'll go through them here. So in terms of treatment of clinically apparent seizures in patients after they have had ROSC from cardiac arrest, they have basically a really strong recommendation of a grade one, but recognize that evidence is limited with the level of evidence C. And they stay untreated. Clinically apparent seizures really are thought to be potentially harmful, which is kind of what we were just talking about. So now in terms of timing, they do recommend to promptly perform 
an EEG for the diagnosis of seizure in patients who are comatose after cardiac arrest who've gotten ROSC. And again, they give a recommendation grade of one with a level of evidence C. Now, that's you know, kind of a vague statement. And I think this is a little bit challenging in that the 2020 ILCOR systematic review did not specifically address the timing. And for emergency physicians, I think that it's something we should be thinking about. But again, the term promptly, I think, allows some leeway for what resources you have available to you at your institution or even within your department. Because at the end of the day, there's no direct evidence that a diagnostic test like an EEG to detect non-convulsive status improves clinical outcomes. So certainly we want to jump on the patient that is having seizures. But to be honest, after the patient's been intubated, they have a paralytic, it's going to be hard to determine whether or not the patient's seizing. We'd prefer to have an EEG quickly. But again, I think they didn't put a strict timestamp like we do at sepsis criteria, everything else, which are even debatable on its own, but about the timing of performing an EEG. Now, the next point is to consider treatment of non-convulsive status diagnosed for the EEG, so recommendation of 2B level evidence C. They do state that non-convulsive seizures are common after cardiac arrest. And, you know, there's no specific percentage, you know, I'd have to dig through the references here, but it is something that should be on the front of our brain as we're managing these patients early on. And again, we don't really know if treating these seizures improves outcome or if it's just a consequence of an outcome that's going to happen. Now, what about treatment? So let's say our patient is having seizures. We've just resuscitated them. They've had return of circulation. They're comatose, and then they start having an active convulsive seizure. What should we treat them with in the emergency department? Well, fortunately, the treatment of seizures can basically be the same post-arrest as they are for patients who present with epileptic seizures. And no specific agents recommended, but I think it's reasonable to start with your benzodiazepines and then followed with a second-line agent such as Keppra or phosphonatoin. I think those two have been fairly equivalent in status epileptic as treatment. So follow your usual seizure anti-epileptic dosing regimen. But what about the patients? This is common, right? AHA is telling us that seizures after arrest are common. Should we be adding in Keppra or starting the patient on benzodrips empirically to prevent seizures in addition to our cocktail of antibiotics and targeted temperature management? Well, right now, seizure prophylaxis in the adult patient after cardiac arrest is not recommended. And they gave that a grade of recommendation of three with a moderate to low level of evidence. Now, there are two randomized control trials comparing seizure prophylaxis with no seizure prophylaxis. And what these trials found that they basically didn't find any difference in the rate of seizure occurrence or survival with favorable neurologic outcome. So while certainly I'm going to pay attention post-arrest if my comatose patient's having active convulsive seizures, if I'm in the emergency department, not in the ICU, I'm going to certainly discuss. We didn't do the EEG down here necessarily if they're readily going upstairs to the intensive care unit, but it's something we would think about. But I wouldn't be starting Empiric Keppra or any epileptic if I did not see anything that was concerning for seizure on my physical exam. Outstanding review, John. I think that's great in terms of bringing things to the bedside, and you answered all my questions, so thanks. Now, we're doing a lot of these things as you let off with the background, we are trying to prevent secondary neurologic injury, the right blood pressure 
talking about the right targets for oxygenation and ventilation, seizure management, once again, neuroprotective stuff. Peter, I'm going to turn things over to you to talk about TTM, something that we've talked about for a lot, but I got to be honest, it just seems that it's not talked about as much, and I feel that we're not utilizing it as much as we once did several years ago. Where does the AHA fall here on TTM in 2020? Well, when we think about targeted temperature management, we need to be cognizant that recently reports show a decreasing utilization of targeted temperature management over the last few years. And this probably is in all likelihood due to studies that demonstrated a non-inferiority of targeted temperature management at 36 degrees and clinicians equating that with normothermia. And it's just not the same. We still, though, have many uncertainties with targeted temperature management. Now, whether temperature should vary depending on patient characteristics, right? How comatose is the patient? How long temperature management targeted should be maintained? And how quickly, you know, how quick do we have to be to jump on this to get the temperature down? So first, let's talk about indications for targeted temperature management. They recommend that targeted temperature management for adults who do not follow commands after return of spontaneous circulation from out of hospital cardiac arrest and any initial rhythm, that class of recommendation is a one and the level of evidence is a B, randomized controlled trial, so moderate. So that's important. Out of hospital cardiac arrest, we should be shooting for this. They recommend targeted temperature management for adults who do not follow commands after ROSC from in-hospital cardiac arrest from an initial non-shockable rhythm. Again, the class of recommendation here is a one, and the level of evidence here is moderate as well with a randomized control trial. And so this study of inpatients and outpatients based on the Hyperion study, we reviewed that earlier here in CCPM. So that compared targeted temperature management at 33 to 37 degrees Celsius in patients who were comatose after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and in-hospital cardiac arrest with initial non-shockable rhythms. Survival with favorable neurological outcome was higher in those treated to 33. So the lower temperature had more favorable neurological outcomes with targeted temperature management. Again, something we reviewed here on CCPM. We recommend targeted temperature management for adults who do not follow commands after ROSC from in-hospital cardiac arrest with initial shockable rhythm. Class of recommendation there is a one, and the level of evidence is a B, which is moderate, no randomized controlled trials. So as I stated, no randomized controlled trials of targeted temperature management in in-hospital cardiac arrest with initial shockable rhythm have been performed. Okay, so we really don't have strong evidence to say what to do. This recommendation is based solely on extrapolation from the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. So we're superimposing that group or class of patients on the in-hospital patients' cardiac arrest. So what about the performance of targeted temperature management? How good does it look? Again, recommend selecting and maintaining a constant temperature somewhere between 32 and 36 degrees. Again, that class of recommendation is a one. Level of evidence is moderate with randomized controlled trials. It is reasonable that targeted temperature management be maintained 
for at least 24 hours after achieving targeted temperature, right? So how long do we do this? Again, 24 hours after we reached our goal. That class of recommendation is a 2A, so not as strong. Level of evidence is a B, which is moderate, no randomized control trial. There is one underpowered randomized control trial that found no difference in outcomes between those who received targeted temperature management for 24 or 48 hours, but not powerful data there. It may be reasonable to actively prevent fever in comatose patients after targeted temperature management. That class of recommendation is a 2B. The level of evidence is a C, so not so good. So just be wary of that. However, it has not been studied whether treatment of fever actually improves outcomes, both on the neurological outcome and survivability. American Heart does not recommend the routine use of rapid infusion of cold IV fluids for pre-hospital cooling of patients after return of spontaneous circulation. That class of recommendation is a three, and the level of evidence there is an A. Outstanding review, Peter. Thanks so much. So, not worrying about TTM in the pre-hospital setting, but certainly when they come in, we've got ROS. We're going to cool them really almost regardless of the initial rhythm if they remain comatose, but more evidence supporting the use in the initial non-shockable rhythm based upon that 2019 New England Journal study we reviewed. Keep them there between 32 and 36 for 24 hours, and then get them up to the ICU where there's still debate on the degree of rewarming at that point. All right, Rob, one of our final big areas in our comprehensive approach to the post-arrest patient And this is a topic we also have talked about before based on a 2019 article, I think the COAX study, and that is who needs to go for PCI following ROSC. So bring us up to date. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's a very important topic, PCI after ROSC. And patients with cardiac arrest due to shockable rhythm have certainly been found to have high rates of coronary artery disease. With uh, patients who have STEMI on post-arrest ECG, up to 96% of them have occlusive lesions on cath. Patients who have refractory VF or VT during their cardiac arrest, about 85% of those patients have occlusive lesions on catheterization. And then with non-STEMI patients on post-arrest ECG, up to 42% of those patients will have occlusive lesions on cardiac catheterization. So successful PCI is associated with improved survival across multiple observational studies. And basically, coronary angiography should be performed emergently for all post-arrest patients with a suspected cardiac cause and a STEMI on ECG. That's class of recommendation one That's an unusually high class of recommendation one. And then level of evidence B. So then in terms of patients who remain comatose after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest but have no evidence of STEMI on ECG, coronary angiography in those patients is recommended as being reasonable for those patients. And that's class of recommendation 2A, level of evidence B and R. So the COAC trial found no improvement in survival in patients resuscitated from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with an initial shockable rhythm who did not have STEMI on ECG. However, only 5% of patients in this study had an acute coronary occlusion. 
So bottom line from this standpoint is if they have a STEMI on ECG or if they've had refractory VF or VT during their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, all of those patients should definitely go to cath for coronary angiography and potential PCI. And then patients who do not have STEMI on ECG, the case there is a little bit unclear. It's certainly reasonable to take them to cath, but it's also, according to the COAX trial, reasonable to observe those patients and not take them directly to cath and a selective approach to cardiac catheterization in those patients. Outstanding, Rob. Thanks so much for pointing us where the 2020 updates are for PCI. Well, I think we're coming down really to the end here. John, let me ask you a few final questions to see if the AHA weighs in on this. It always seems like these critically ill patients, we talk about glucose management. So I'm not sure if there's any recommendations on where we should be targeting glucose just to be more comprehensive in delivering critical care. And then I seem to recall a New England Journal of Medicine article looking at the post-arrest patient and increased incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Should we be given prophylactic antibiotics to these people? And then finally, we have evidence in terms of patients presenting with septic shock. We provide perhaps corticosteroids. And I wonder, are there any recommendations, are there any studies in patients with refractory shock from ROSC that may benefit from steroids. So where should we fall with glucose? Should we give antibiotics? And what do we do with steroids in the post-ROSC patient? Sure, Mike. Yeah, these are all great questions. And maybe we should start off with the glucose management first. And, you know, I think that the benefit of any specific range for glucose management really is uncertain. This got a moderate recommendation with a relatively moderate level of evidence score from the AHA. And Basically, they came out and said there's no specific evidence in cardiac arrest patients that there's an optimal glucose management range. And it's reasonable to follow the same goals that we target for most of our general critically ill population, somewhere of a moderate glucose control, less than 180. If you want to range between 150 and 180 milligrams per deciliter, seems reasonable to target in the post-arrest patient. Now, the antibiotics question's interesting, and I think the New England Journal article of the Antarctic trial was a really good one. And we talked about this with CCPM before. And I guess the question they asked was, should we now routinely use prophylactic antibiotics in our post-arrest patients? And, you know, they kind of gave it a, in the middle of the road grade, a class of recommendation of a 2B with a level evidence B as well. And, you know, a 2020 ILCOR systematic review found the two randomized control trials and a number of small observational studies that looked at prophylactic antibiotics on outcomes in post-arrest patients. And, you know, neither of them found a difference in survival or outcome. One study, that Antarctic trial, did find a lower incidence of pneumonia, but it didn't translate to an outcome benefit. Now, this gets into the muddy waters of critical care where there's intermediate measures or outcome measures, and then there's the mortality measure. And after the Antarctic trial, that is something that changed my practice. I now routinely empirically prescribe antibiotics for my post-arrest patients. Although the recommendation's uncertain here, I think that gives latitude if you shouldn't want to do that. But certainly, I think there's mounting evidence to suggest it may be beneficial in preventing morbidity that could get the patient towards improved mortality. And lastly, 
routine use of steroids with refractory shock after ROSC, there's really uncertain value to that with a class of recommendation to and a level evidence B as well. Since the last update in 2015, two randomized trials were completed on steroids after ROSC in patients with refractory shock. Only one of those was published and it didn't find a difference in shock reversal or outcome. A large observational study was also published that did show and association with improved survival, but essentially there's no conclusive evidence to demonstrate benefit in the post-arrest patient population. So how I take that is I'm probably going to treat that similarly to any of my catecholamine refractory shock patients. If they're not responding as I would expect them to, I'd consider early hydrocortisone therapy. And when my EPIC inevitably bings and says my patient has met sepsis criteria because they're post-arrest with a lactate of four, I actually oblige them and order the antibiotics because I think that's something that may be worthwhile for my patients. Great perspective, John. And Peter, Rob, and John, I can't thank you enough for this podcast. We've chucked full 30 minutes of this update more so on the post-arrest interventions from the 2020 AHA updated guidelines. We've talked about a systematic approach, having a systematic approach, and not really necessarily haphazard interventions and treatments, focusing on appropriate blood pressure management and where the AHA falls with respect to the latest evidence. Oxygenation, ventilation targets, we've talked about focusing or looking for seizures and subsequently treating them, implementing TTM and who that's applicable for, getting the right patients off to PCI, and then the things that you just mentioned, John, in terms of just providing overall comprehensive critical care. I think this has been an extremely informative podcast, and I think questions that any of our listeners may have, please feel free to reach out to us for a deeper dive, further discussion. But I think we've brought everybody now with this part one and part two up to date with the latest hot off the press 2020 American Heart Association guidelines for emergency cardiovascular care and cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So gentlemen, my thanks for another outstanding podcast. I am so looking forward to our final podcast here in 2020, which we will get recorded and posted before the new year. Any final thoughts, Rob, Peter, John? So I would just say, approach the patient with all these multiple levels that we talked about, not just be happy with it hemodynamically, but be concerned about the oxygenation, the ventilation, the targeted temperature management, the concern and looking and considering seizure as a diagnosis. I think these are complex patients and deserve really a careful review of how you can make them better. Yeah, I agree, Peter. I think if I had one wish for 2020, well, I'd have a lot of wishes, but one wish regarding this topic, it would be to remove the nihilism that's developed around targeted temperature management. Mike, you alluded to this, but these patients really need active temperature management. Even if they come in a little bit cold, they will rebound quickly. So if you get ROSC, actively manage their temperature. We still target between 32 and 34 degrees. There's a lot of observational data suggests that when we target a little bit higher, these patients are at risk for early fever, which does impact the outcome. So definitely stay on top of that temperature. Don't just passively management while they're in the ED. Start them off on the right foot before they go upstairs. Well said. And as we wrap up, since we may not get to that last podcast until closer to New Year's, I think on behalf of all of us here, Rob, Peter, John, and myself, we want to wish you a very, very happy holiday season. Yes, we know 
holiday time this year is different than in every other year's past, but it's still a special time to take note and really appreciate and spend time with the ones that matter most to you. So our very best wishes for the really enjoyable holiday season. Stay safe, stay well, and we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.